poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend. Welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG was a 2022 finalist for the GPI Tournament Director of the Year, is the tournament supervisor for the MGN Grand, and is touted by CPG fan favorite and one-day Poker Hall of Famer Matt Savage, as one of the very best in the world at his craft, Justin Hammer. Despite being named after an Iron Man villain, I had an amazing time speaking with Justin and learning about everything that goes into estimating and hitting tournament guarantees, what the other side of an overlay feels like when guarantees are missed, and how it feels running tournaments in Texas, where as we all know, everything is bigger. And before you dive in and learn more about Justin, there are some technical difficulties in today's episode, so please bear with us, and if you just can't take it, tag Matt Savage on Twitter and send him all of your complaints. I'm sure it's somehow his fault. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you one of the very best and brightest tournament directors in the whole world, the one and only Justin Hammer. Justin Hammer, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Happy, uh, very happy to be here. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. You know, Matt Savage, our mutual friend, connected us. What is it with tournament directors and strong last names? You got Savage and Hammer. <laughs> is it like a prerequisite? Do you guys like go to school and <laughs> this part of the Honestly, training program? It's, uh, it's- it's like a chicken in the egg sort of thing. I don't know if we like be, like got to where we are because we have such cool last names or <laughs> if it's just a, a coincidence that we like have cool last names and then all got in the same thing. But yeah, I don't know. There are uh, there are a lot of uh, power names in the tournament directing business for sure. I need a cool name. You guys need to hook me up. Um, <laughs> let's, let's see well, what we I, can do. I have my parents to thank for it. I was uh, I was born with it, but it, it can be awkward sometimes because people call me hammer when I'm at work all the time. And then somebody who doesn't know me that well, they're like, Oh, that's a really cool last name. How did you get that? And it's like, uh, or a cool (laughs) nickname. Like, Oh, I was, I was born with it. Like, it's not like that wasn't my nickname when I was doing time. And I like had a reputation for shutting down anybody with a bad attitude. No, I was just born with it. Ah, come on, man. Just, just lie. Well, what's, (laughs) what's the big deal? Um, <laughs> I try to lie, but they always see right through it. That's why I'm on the tournament directing side and not the playing side. They see right through it. I see, I see. And yeah, speaking of tournament directing, you know, let's talk about your story and how you got in this world, you know, in the first place. And um, if you don't mind me asking, you know, h- how old are you so that we can kind of yeah set the stage for what your entry into the world of poker look like? Sure. Uh, I'm 38. I'll be 39 next month. So uh, coming up on my 40s. But I I fell in love with poker uh, when I was in my teens. I would play in some home games with my brother, my older brother. He had he had moved out and he lived in the house with his buddies, and we would play all the uh, 
crazy games that the the young kids don't even know about nowadays but like everything was like table stakes except there's always one game that you play where you have to match the size of the pot no matter what and somebody has to go to the atm and pull out 40 <laughs> bucks and it and it devastates their life but uh i i just loved the game i loved playing it i loved the social aspect of it and uh as soon as i turned 18 i was in southern california at the time and most of the indian casinos were 18 or over over so i started playing one to five spread limit stud at a place called morongo in southern california and slowly graduated up to three six limit and then at some point they came up with a one two no limit it might have even been one one but uh i was going to school to become a lawyer in college and i got to a point where like i realized that it just wasn't going to be for me i saw lawyers on tv or whatever i thought it was cool but once you start actually hanging out with them it's just so much more work than it is arguing and that was just i knew that i needed to be involved with poker at some point and so my wife now she was my girlfriend at the time she was going to school for teaching and i just said i i want to go to vegas and i want to pursue this and it was i maybe i'll play but probably not like i'm very realistic like i don't know if i have the chops i don't know if it's sustainable i don't know if this is even a thing that people do but like i'll get involved in the working side of it so that there's some guaranteed money coming in and then if i decide to go and then and I go to Vegas, I started working. Uh, I dealt the World Series of Poker in 2007. Uh, that was kind of my first job. It was like a, basically a break-in job. Like you think World Series and it should be spectacular and it is, but like also they need a thousand dealers. So they can't afford to be too picky. So I went to dealer school, I learned how to deal. I got a job at the World Series of Poker and then poker was kind of tough to get into then. Why was it so hard uh, getting into poker back then? Everybody wanted experience and nobody wanted to like give you a break in. It probably wasn't hard for people that had a lot of experience, but like dealing the World Series in my mind was like great experience. But in someone and now that I'm on the operations side, I kind of understand it more, but like it wasn't really experience. So I was still very green. But uh Binion's was hiring and I just I went in for an audition and then I just showed up every day, like, hey. You ready to hire me yet? Like, hey, is it cool? Can I do? I'm ready. If you need someone, I'll work off the clock. I don't care. Eventually, like, just persistence got me in, and I worked. Uh, I worked at Binion's for first three years of my career in poker. Uh, I trained under Paul, learned how to run tournaments, learned kind of the operation side. I was a floor supervisor probably after six months, and then did a little bit of both. And I would work the grave shift at Binion's. I worked the other nine to five. And whenever the room went dark at Binion's, we'd go across the street to Golden Nugget and we would play poker all night. And that was kind of uh, my how I first got in. Then I went over to Aria in 2012-ish, 2011 maybe. I dealt for, again, probably about six months. And then they were looking for people that wanted to run tournaments. And I said, all right, I'm in. Uh, I ran tournaments at Aria, including when they first started doing the high rollers, I did a lot of the the first super high roller bowl that was 500,000, the 25 and 50Ks that they did just regularly. I was there when they started the, if you're on time, you get uh, no rake thing that they do now. 
And having been there on both sides before and after they did that, it just makes perfect sense. And it's now it just seems like genius. But you would show up and there would be 15 people that you knew were going to play and there would be two people signed up and you just wander around like, hey, are we going to go? Are we ready to go? We're 30 minutes after start time. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as this guy that I'm talking to signs up. And so like we could just never get the tournament going. And then once we started doing that and it's, hey, here's an extra 500 bucks in your pocket, thousand, whatever it is. Now, all of a sudden you get there at two o'clock and you've got 15 people signed up. So uh, it was really good. Then I worked with Matt Savage during the very first WPT 500 in uh, 2015. And that's kind of where our relationship started. So when they were looking for people at Commerce uh, to take over the tournament coordinating position that was vacant by uh, my buddy, Sam Quinto, Savage kind of put my name in the hat and got me that interview. And then uh, we worked together at Commerce until 2019. Yeah. And Savage doesn't do anything with Commerce these days, right? Uh, I think they come off the WP. I'm not exactly sure what happened in that situation. So COVID did like this big reset for Commerce. And it was honestly, there was some things that they were they were kind of wanting to do anyway, and this was an excuse. I'm not saying like getting rid of Matt Savage is one of them. I don't think that's true at all. But like, it was kind of, they wanted tournaments to be a little different. Like most everywhere now, tournaments have kind of molded into self-sustaining. Like they need to make a profit on their own. Commerce was very much at a time where tournaments were just a marketing tool. And their job is to get people in and yeah, you want to make enough that they kind of support themselves. But the real goal is get them in, get them out, and then downstairs playing where they make their actual money. And as it kind of transformed, and a lot of it was me in my time there and Savage in his time there, when I was there, like it started mold, like it moved with the tide that is tournament poker. And commerce was never a real big fan of that. That's never what they wanted tournaments to be anyway. They kind of just wanted them to still be the marketing tools that get people into cash games. And this why, was like a good Why do you think reset. they were they were resistant to that? Like while every all the other rooms were kind of moving towards something different. I I think there's some of it is just there's the old school mentality. Like they were there when tournaments worked really well that way. Like when so I go back and look at some of the old structure sheets sometimes from commerce like circa 2007 2008 in that range and they were just you get 3,000 starting chips you get 30 minute levels and it's single entry you're not there on time you don't get to sign up and you look at some of the results that they got they could do these tournaments and get 2,000 entries they would have to put patio or tables on the patio to get people in like that there's a lot of people that were there during that time that still believe that's the way it can be done and should be done and will be done or what have you. And I think they want to try and even if they don't think they could do it the same way now, they want to get back to that kind of mindset. Yeah. Do, do you think there's merit to that approach? I, I was there, I guess, in 2007 during like California State Poker Championship, um, those sort of years. And then LAPC is like the second largest festival in the world, I believe to this day, um, behind the WSOP. So it's like a, it's a giant place. And I've spent a lot of my life living at commerce casino. So it's a place that's 
pretty Me near, too. <laughs> near, near and dear to my heart, which may surprise many listeners of the podcast and many regulars at Commerce who don't always have great things to say. But you know, for for whatever it's worth, from my side, I've always loved playing at Commerce. I've just enjoyed being at the Commerce Casino. Um, although I do understand people don't like it. And, and I, I've heard that it's certainly changed because I haven't been there since probably 2015 or so. So seven years. So it's it's changed quite a bit in the time that I was there and, uh, up until today, I think. Yeah, it has for sure. Now, uh, I don't know. Like they, It just seemed like bringing Matt back was just this big restart that they just, for whatever reason, didn't want to do. I mean... LAPC isn't a WPT thing anymore. So that's that crazy to me. Like that's, really that's wild that yeah, it's and, not, it's not a WPT stop. And they're not, they're not doing mixed games the way they used to, because they kind of want, they want to do the mixed games. They want to do the tournaments for the games that they have on the floor, because again, that mentality is get them in for one thing so that they go and do something else. And it's, I, I, I'm a believer that if you do a, horse tournament and you have a Omaha game that the horse players will go down and play Omaha. Or if you have, even if you have like a deuce of seven tournament and then you have an OE on the floor, like those are all the same players. It's the same pool. Like if you like playing, basically if you like playing, not hold them, then you like playing, not hold them. And all those guys kind of go to the same place, but it's, it's a switch and who knows, like they commerce has done a lot of things. They've been very successful for a really long time. And so some of those, like, yeah, when I'm when I'm in charge of things, I see things a little different or I want to do them a little differently. But also I haven't had the kind of success that they've had over the last 30, 40 years. Now they've got uh, DJ Viegas. He's doing the tournaments over there. He's my number one guy whenever I do something. He's the first person I call on when I need help with something. And I think he's a really sharp guy. I think he's got a lot of good ideas. And if anyone can make it happen over there with them, I think he's he's a great choice. So I'm looking forward to see what they do over there. Awesome, man. And you and I are, are the same age. And so I can kind of see your timeline in my mind's eye, right? You're playing as like a teenager, um, which is before the moneymaker boom. I imagine, you know, like late 90s time period. How did you stumble across poker? Like how did it even get on your radar in the first place, just the the home games with your friends or just Southern California, you just see them? The things like they progressed for me. A lot of it, like I, I was there during the Moneymaker boom and that was really cool, but I was already pretty into poker by the time Moneymaker won. I remember there was a, uh, a travel channel before WPT, there was a travel channel show about uh, the year that, Chris, or uh, no, uh, Carlos Mortensen, the year that Carlos Mortensen one and it wasn't poker like we do now it was more like a documentary like they weren't showing hands they were just kind of showing the process right. and like him going through and winning and it was like this game that i'm playing with my brother and his buddies for nickels and dimes or whatever like people do this in an organized big fun fashion and then of course rounders came up and that whole like oh we go to these private games and we we win and then there's just I can read all the judges' hands blind just by seeing their up cards and stud and this cool, like, oh, yeah, this game is really cool. And Rounders was – and now you look back and a lot of that stuff, like, doesn't even make sense. Like, just <laughs> the whole 
we're playing for ten thousand. He opened for a thousand dollars with kings. Like some of this stuff just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, twenty like, twenty five fifty, right? It's like oh, right, right, thousand, yeah. right. We'll just, I'll, I'll make it a thousand, and then he'll make it five thousand, and then I'll consider folding kings. Like just this whole. But obviously, the movie was great, and it served its purpose, and it's a lot of fun. And like, I had I had Koppelman on, by the way, and and like. It, if you think about it from like a movie sense, right? It's like heads up poker match, 2550 playing for 30K would last like a good 18 hours. It would be the most boring movie of all time if it was right. like in any sense realistic. Um, yeah. But I I'm with you. Rounders was a major hook into it, just piqued my curiosity, made me interested about the lifestyle and playing cards like for a living where you're kind of like hacking um you know ha hacking a career where you don't have somebody who's telling you what to do and you can just play cards and you, you can um it's a meritocracy right so, which is yeah. all, all very appealing things to uh, i mean me in present day and also 18 or 17 or 16 year old brad uh, as well so for the podcast listener here, I just want to give a warning. We've had some technical difficulties in the interim and I have no way to do a smooth segue from what we were talking about before because I lost track of where the hell I was at. We were talking about rounders and how, you know, I said that it would be quite a boring movie if it were 12 hours of Mike McDee battling KGB heads up in, in earnest, um, which is a slow pace for movies um I, I think probably not acceptable but for what it's worth i think that koppelman did do a good job of creating intrigue and story and yeah it, it pulled me in and i still say all the time that mike mcdee is probably the most influential person in my whole poker career just because of that one character um and getting back to your story uh let's just kind of fast forward through the the commerce days, the dealing, the playing, um, and then the directing. What led to your leaving uh, of Commerce Casino and moving to the great state of Texas? <laughs> so Commerce, and to just finish up on Rounders real quick, I think a lot of movies, they like, as poker players, we want it to be very pokery when they do it, but as a casual fan, it's just, it's usually not very entertaining, whatever the real poker is. So I totally understand when they write movies that are cool, like, oh, I made it $1,000. If you know nothing about poker, that's a lot of fun. Just like if somebody's really good, so they make royal flushes, like we know that's not a thing. But if you're watching as a casual fan, like I, I get it. And whatever gets somebody's, you know, foot in the door for poker, I'm all for it. But uh, I... I had a big tournament that we did at Commerce. The last one that I did there, my uh, swan song called the uh, the Abyss, which was you play the same level for the first six hours of a tournament. And it is funny because it's almost where my career ended up after running the tournament, the, uh, <laughs> the Abyss. But uh, it, it missed the guarantee by a pretty decent chunk. And uh honestly how, there was some, how, how much what, what's a decent chunk it, i mean it was like twenty thousand. it wasn't like i mean as far as misguarantees that's not like it's probably the sixth most in my career that i've missed by to be honest but like 
it was more of a series of things that like sometimes in this business it's you better be sure like okay i missed one a year earlier by a hundred thousand so then it's kind of like you better be sure going forward and so this was one of those series where it's like you better be sure if you're going to put it on and so like i gambled and i put it on there and i wasn't sure and it missed and it led to some conversations i won't say that i was outright fired but i mean it was close to that like we just we decided it would be better to go our separate ways and so that's that's kind of what happened and then that was right before covid and i had lots of stuff i was ready like this was a stepping stone in my career like i was ready for it i had been talking to some local indian casinos about running series there and i'd gotten the green light on some things i was working at thunder valley uh, with my buddy Ben Irwin, and I had lots of uh, series lined up working with him. COVID happened, everything went away. So now, I mean, I was in that boat like two or three months before everybody was, but eventually everyone caught up to me, unfortunately. And then we were all just kind of looking for work. Um, uh, could 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 you talk about the pressure of guarantees from the tournament director side? Like what goes into predicting those guarantees? And then, you know, you just mentioned that the downside of missing the guarantee is that the operator is probably unhappy with said tournament director. So like, how does that relationship work? And then how do you, uh, I mean, how do you even come up with a guarantee for a specific event? There's a lot that goes into it. I can tell you the toughest, the toughest way to do that was doing it in Texas because there's, no real history. When I was at Commerce, you know, you do a, when you're trying something new and you put a guarantee on it, you can kind of factor in what you know, like what, what type of turnout do we get in September generally? What, what type of buy-in level are people comfortable with? If I'm putting an experiment on it, how exciting is it going to be? Is it going to draw people in because they want to try this or does it need to be just enough that they're willing to try it? Like, Sometimes people just want to come in and you know they're going to come because it's a great idea. And then sometimes like this abyss, you just have no idea. Like it's, you know, generally what kind of turnout you can get around that time. You know, you can gauge interest based off of, you know, social media and posts on your website and things like that. But generally you look at the time period that you're running it. You look at the buy-in. You kind of weigh in how many people you need to get in there, like just generally to support having a tournament and how many you think would show up if you did nothing and you try and find a number. I think ideally people in you'll see in my career and I, I'm a big risk taker. It's just part of being a gambler and gambler and a player myself. But I think ideally. If I could just do things perfectly, I would miss every guarantee by $100 like if I could just figure out the perfect number. You told me exactly what I was, if I could just see the future and plug in all the numbers and know what I was going to get, I would miss every guarantee by hundred dollars. Cause nowadays you see, and it's fine and it still serves a purpose and I'm not knocking it, but like you see people put a hundred thousand guarantee on a tournament. They know they're going to get 500,000 for, they put something on there that, you know, it's just, it's super safe. And to me, if it's never in danger of missing, like zero chance it misses ever, then it doesn't serve the purpose, at least not the way that I want it to. So I do, I put something that I don't get me wrong. I always hope it's going to get there. It's not fun when it misses, but I want it to be something that's like, oh my God, he thinks it's going to be that big. Okay. I'm going to go play it. 
And if that's the kind of reaction that you're looking for, you have to swing for the fences sometimes. Sometimes you have to say, look, like this, people are knocking that I did a 2 million guarantee for a 5,300 because that's a big buy-in and small guarantee comparatively, but there's never been a 5,300 in Texas before that. The two, this isn't like MGM putting on $2 million. It's a drop in the bucket to their billions of dollars that they have. This is an individual owner who's saying, okay, we're going to put this tournament on. And if it doesn't get to $2 million, I'm going to pull that money out of my pocket and I'm going to pay the rest of it, which to his credit, the last series, we did miss by a hundred thousand and he did pull that money out of his pocket and he did pay it to the players. So like, I know that he's good for it. I know he believes in what we're doing, but like for me to tell that same person, no, no, make it a 5 million. Game. <laughs> I know we've never had a single $5,300 player in this room ever but let's guarantee we'll get a thousand of them next month. How does that sound? Like saying that we're going to do it with 400 was pretty strong. Like it was pretty bold. And it, it's also a stepping stone. Like you can't come out of the gate with a thousand player guarantee. You have to like build up to it. Yeah. And now you have more data to, to base your future predictions on. Right. Right. And like more of a roadmap. What did we do that worked? What did we do that didn't work? What did people like? What did they not like? And when you're doing something like this, how many people didn't come to Texas because they just, they still don't understand what's happening here versus now that people came. And if you talk to people who came and played this tournament, you hear a lot of good things. And I believe that because normally the bad ones filter through me. I'm the first person to hear about them. And I have heard a lot of good things and not a whole lot of bad things. And so I know that people that came had a good experience. We had uh nate silver was here kitty kuo landon tice a lot of the uh p carroll who or uh carroll who won the tournament he i just went to seattle seahawks uh he won the tournament like <laughs> we had some big we had some big names come out and play and had a really good time so like we, we can't forget either uh a good friend of the podcast nick howard got second actually um who's put you know he's released uh, we've probably released close to 10 episodes together over the last couple of years. Just a super, super, super great guy. Super happy for him. Uh, yeah, there was, I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to him about it, but I actually gave a penalty at the final table that he was involved in. Nice. Uh, no, I, I did. I yeah. haven't had a chance to, did, was it him getting penalized? No, he was the, he was just the other player in the hand. Mm. Uh, it was, it was one of those tensions get high at, the final table obviously and they were playing for a lot of uh, a lot of money and it was one of those in any other circumstance it probably would have been easily squashed like no problem and i don't i don't think either of them was were super out of line just generally i think they just were in that situation and i think it had a lot to do lot to do with the fact that uh it was a hundred thousand dollar pay jump <laughs> like yeah. there were they were forehanded in the tournament at the time. And it was, uh, it was just kind of like, I don't think you, it turned, it was actually Nick who made a, he made a move that looked, it looked bad, but you go back and you watch it and he definitely wasn't trying anything. It just looked bad. Like he brought out chips and then tried to raise more than what was in his hand. And he admitted like, that's what, that's how you know, like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have done it that way. But uh, the other player in the hand took offense to it. And then it kind of just, uh, you're out of line. I'm not out of line. You're out of line. No, you're so, not. And it just kept escalating. Yeah. So, so he like grabbed chips 
put them out and then verbalize their raise? Is that what happened? He like kind of went back to grab more without uh, really verbalizing it. And it was what a noob. It, yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't, it was just like a brain fart. It was one of those, like, and honestly, these are the types of things all I'm worried about as a tournament director is, are you shooting an angle? And a hundred percent, he was not shooting an angle. So like, it's one of those, yeah, we're going to have to make it a call or raise whatever's in your hand type of situation. But like the other player in the hand kind of talked about it as if it was an angle to yeah. which Nick took offense to, to which he took offense to him taking offense. And then we were <laughs> fine. We were fine. Like I was there, I had him calm, but then uh, Nick raises and the other player says, ah, shocker. And it was like, okay, now, now I'm going to have to give a penalty just for the word shocker because like, because I asked you not to say anything and you did it anyway. So like, and I called him over and I was like, hey, look, I, if I'm doing my job, I'm involved in this as little as possible. Like you all are figuring out who's going to win this tournament. You and the cards, not me. I don't want to be involved in this at all. And so kind of pulled him aside and told him like, okay, look, we're going to miss your small blinds. That's what we're going to miss right now. That could have a significant impact on the tournament. I hope not. But right now it's your small blinds. If we have to come over here again, it's going to be a small and a big blind. <laughs> and then if we have to do it again, then it's going to be a couple of those. I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in this at all. And like just the few minutes that I had him over there when he missed the small blind, he calmed down and played the tournament. And I, I don't know, maybe if Nick tells you the story, it's better. But when he went and sat back down like to get back at him, he just ripped seven deuce off for like 30 bigs. And Nick called with Ace Shack and busted him from the tournament. So it after it all was said and done, it worked out good for him. So. That, is, that is quite a weird story. Um, yeah. It I was guess James it, Carroll. I got to say it. It was James Carroll who won the tournament. I don't like I went to Seattle Seahawks. Pete Carroll It's James yeah. Carroll who won. Pete, the tournament. Pete Carroll may have been there. There was a lot of people who, <laughs> who's to know that Pete Carroll wasn't at the tournament. You know, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That is James deserves to have his actual name said on the podcast. He's the winner of the tournament. His name is James. Pete Carroll is the coach of Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> um, there we go. Speaking of misguarantees, what's the biggest misguarantee that you've had? as a as a tournament director uh i've had two that were six figures i missed one uh i missed one by a hundred thousand at commerce it was the cal state poker championship there's a million guarantee and we got to nine hundred thousand and then uh i missed the one at prime we tried to do a tournament during the world series of poker which i will never do again and it was a uh $1,700 buy-in, $1.5 million guarantee, and it got to uh, about $1.3. So we missed that one by like $180,000. And as you're kind of seeing like, oh shit, we are, we're not going to hit the guarantee. Like what are you feeling in those moments? And like what thoughts are going through your, your head? I can tell you the difference between me and Matt Savage. Matt Savage will tell you if it's, not, it's no fun if there's no sweat. That's what Savage will tell you. There's, it's no fun if there's no sweat. I disagree. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it's very fun when there's no sweat. But honestly, like every, every time I've missed one in my career, there is this, this feeling, like this sense, like you just know it's coming. It's never like, 
it just, especially in these tournaments that are four day events and you need a thousand entries. And then like day one, you get 50 players, like, oh crap. And it's sometimes like I've had it happen at commerce where it was, I need a thousand in four days. And day one was 90 and day two was a hundred and day three was 200. And it's like, oh no, I'm drawing dead. And then day four was like 750 and you get there and it's no problem. Like at commerce that has happened. In Texas, that's not really going to happen. You know it's going to go like good, better, best as it progresses. But like, it's there is a pit in your stomach where it's, what do I do? And sometimes, you know, you're not going to be able to fix it. You're not going to be able to get an extra hundred bodies in the door for a seventeen hundred, but you might be able to get twenty. And then it's, what are you going to do with those extra twenty? Like, how are you going to sell that to ownership? Like, okay, yeah, I need you to write a six-figure check. But it could have been more. Like, they, they don't. They don't. You want really the good live. news or the bad right. news? Right. It's never like if I say you owe me 180, but at least it's not 250. Like, it doesn't really make them feel better. So like, it doesn't feel good. It feels very much like you have been grinding a tournament and you're on the bubble and you finally look down at like four. So you just rip your last seven bigs and you get called in five spots and they all have no repair. Like <laughs> you just, you know, it's coming. Like you're just, you know, that things aren't going to good. but it's also nothing is a bad experience unless you don't learn anything from it. That's always been my stance going through this in my career. Like, even if it gets me fired, like, what did I learn from it? How am I going to do better at what I'm doing? And so when we missed that other one, it was, Okay, hey, look, here's here's some mistakes that we made. We thought that with the way with the community that we had and the way things seem to be going in Vegas, that we could pull off a decent sized series. Now I don't think that's true. Can we do something during the World Series? Sure. Should we swing for the fences? Probably not. And so it was also I took that as an opportunity. I wrote a blog called What Is It Like When You Miss Big Guarantees? And I just explained from my point of view, hey, here's what it's like. And I got a lot of feedback on that blog. Like, oh, I never realized that there was so much pressure on you to do things like that. I never realized that it's basically like you're losing your own money when you do things like that. Like you work a series and you don't make a lot of money because the house didn't make any money. And so like, I just kind of explained what it's like. And you can still see that on the prime site if anyone's interested, but like- That's shocking I, really. I, I wouldn't have imagined that like casinos didn't enjoy losing money in card rooms. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the shock yeah. of the and year it, there. <laughs> and there there are places that I mean, don't get me wrong, nobody likes it, but and even the places like you think, oh, they're a billion dollar conglomerate or whatever, and they lost a couple hundred thousand, but it's never it's never just one giant bucket that they pull and put into. There's people who are in charge of certain departments. And when you run a casino, it's like it all it's like an umbrella it sprinkles down there's one person who's in charge of five people who are each in charge of five people and then it gets all the way down to your job is to make these tournaments profitable or to make the room profitable and if you have these big misses then you're not doing your job it's not we lost 200,000 out of our billions of dollars it's your job was to make x number of dollars and you fell short by x number of dollars that means you aren't doing your job well Maybe we need to put somebody else in that position. So when you are in that position in your job, it, like my job when we do the series is to put a guarantee that we're going to hit. So when it doesn't happen, I haven't done my job. You do that enough times, 
you don't have that job anymore. Just it's how it works, regardless of how much money they have somewhere else. If you're yeah. losing the money anywhere, they don't like it very much. Yeah, I, I could I could certainly see that. And I, I want to let's segue to living in Texas and being on being in uh, the the whole Texas card room scene that is kind of it's it's wild, wild westy a little bit right now. Um, good good phrase for it for sure. Yeah, wild, wild westy. Um, yeah. To my understanding. And I could be wrong. I, I am not a lawyer, nor did I go to school to one day try to become one and then become a tournament director. Um, but like, it feels tenuous that with the change of a law, could the card rooms just be wiped out? Like, is that sort of the the situation that's going on in Texas right now? Like, would they just kind of disappear overnight if specific laws got changed? And um in which case, that's got to be a pretty scary spot to be in, like in the whole Texas card room scene. Yeah, I mean, in theory, a version of that can happen. The only thing that isn't, uh, it's just not a fast process. Like you can't change a law overnight. You can, you can. Unless it was it. UIGEA, because that shit got changed overnight. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Even that, like. The law didn't change, just the enforcement or the interpretation or the, like, that part changed overnight. And even that, it's really tough to happen, especially the way things are going in Texas right now. So the way they operate, and the way I got here, by the way, is this stuff happened at Commerce. COVID shut everything down. In Texas, it did shut down for a little bit for all the COVID stuff, but it opened up a lot quicker, especially since, like we were talking about, these rooms aren't, they aren't regulated the same way. So there's, you can't, it's a lot tougher. A lot of them were looked at like restaurants or bars because they serve food. And then the other half of their business was poker. So like when, when poker or when restaurants were opening back up, poker rooms started opening up in Texas. So when I came out here, it was, it's still going. They had a need for what I can do. I wanted to work. So it was like just a match made in heaven. I came out here and I visited for a week and I was like, oh yeah, like I could work with this. Like this looks fun. Like let's do it. Uh, so the way that poker works in Texas is there's, and the reason why people say it's illegal or it wasn't here for a long time and now it is, is because there's some very specific rules that are in the Texas law that you basically that you can't do. And some would say that the spirit of the law is that you can't play. And that's why people say that it's illegal, because these rules exist saying that you can't play. But they have rules that were made specifically so that, like, you could say they didn't want there to be poker. But what they really didn't want is casinos or card rooms or, like, people that were just building these conglomerates to make money off of them or whatever. What they did want was for you and I to be able to sit in my living room play cards with each other and like not have the police come in and raid and take it down or whatever. So between those two different things, you are allowed to, if you are a member of a private club, you could pretty much do things that you want. If you are not profiting off of the outcome of a hand. So like blackjack, whoever is closest to 21, they win. So it's based off the outcome of the hand. If everyone involved has an equal chance of winning, so 
people are looking at this under a microscope and saying, okay, so if we don't do A, B, C, D, then it's good. So places, uh, social clubs in Texas, they aren't profiting off the outcome of a hand. They're not taking anything out of a pot. They don't have a financial benefit to the fact that the game is going. They have a financial benefit because you're renting your seat and you're paying to be in there and you pay to be a member of our private clubs. So there are, but there's a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of people smarter than me who looked at this and said, okay, you said I can't do A, B, C, D. So I'm not gonna do any of that. I'm gonna do E and I'm gonna do F and I'm gonna do G. And yeah, I get it. If somebody says that's against the spirit of the rule, maybe they're right. And maybe someday somewhere down the road, somebody will say, okay, this is what we meant. So now we're gonna add these to the laws of things that you can't do. I and hope it very not. well may happen. I hope yeah. not too. What yeah. I hope is that they see the financial impact that it has on these cities to have card rooms and how much safer they are to have them the way that we're doing them now instead of some of the dangers that are involved with running underground games. Which and are going to run 1,000%. I mean, it's course. just guaranteed. And it's, I don't even have anything against underground games. Like, people that do them, I've played in some of them since I've been out here. Like, I am, I am all for it and for people's right to play poker pretty much any way that they can, generally. But, like, I think it should be an option. And especially for what I do, it's really tough to have a million dollar tournament in an underground situation. So having a place <laughs> where you yeah. can do it, like I think it provides a benefit to the city. It gets people in. We had people traveling from, I counted at least 20 different states that were in our main event, five different countries. And that was just barely going over the list of the people that had played. Like people came into Houston to play these tournaments at Prime Social. And I'm pretty sure they didn't just sit down and play poker and leave. But even if they did, we pay our taxes. When we make money, we pay taxes back to the city. But I just know, I saw pictures. People are going to ball games. They're going to restaurants. They're, going, they're staying in hotels. They're renting cars. They're shopping. They're going to the Galleria. They're doing all kinds of things. The economic impact to the cities when we do these tournaments is huge. And obviously, in my opinion, it's worthwhile for it to be for it to be a legal, organized, regulated part of the Texas community. And I, it's possible. Like I, I don't want to, what I don't think is possible is, and what I think most people are worried about, it's not really possible that somebody comes in and arrests you for playing poker in one of these clubs because you, you are participating in a service that we're providing. And if something happened where they said it was illegal for us to provide that service, the club would get shut down. The club would get in trouble. The club would get whatever. But at this point, you can't really do that. You can't find any individual club and say you're breaking the law. And then just you know, some of them are doing things, obviously, that you could get in trouble for anywhere. If you're laundering money, if you're selling drugs, if you're doing illegal activity that is black and white, it's not in this gray area that we like to live in. Yeah, obviously, you're going to get in trouble. And what I think happens is some places run into that. And then kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, oh, well, if that club got shut down, then all of them are illegal. But we don't really do that anywhere. If something bad happens in Vegas at a casino, it's like, oh, there was a bad actor in that casino. It's not all the casinos must be doing this. It or was, a restaurant was a or just any any uh, any other place of business as well, right? Um, right. Seems- but when you're doing it the way that we're doing it, it's easy to just lump everybody in with what's happening. And what I tell people is, yeah, it is 
it is unregulated. There, I don't think all social clubs are created equal. If you're coming to Texas, there are places that I would play and there are places that I would not play. There's uh, TCH, they're a brand, they have a reputation. I would play in pretty much any one of those. Prime Social, obviously, that's where I work. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put my name on it if I didn't trust the organization and the people running it just 100%, which I do. Uh, I haven't been to the lodge, but I've heard nothing good, nothing but good things about what they're doing over there. And I imagine uh, Doug Polk and Andrew Neamey and uh, Brad Owen probably wouldn't put their name on it if they didn't believe in it too. Uh, but it's just, I would talk to somebody that you trust before going there, read Poker Atlas reviews, uh, follow Twitter, just see. But if you've never heard of it, there's probably one that's safer down the street that I would check out first. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's just, it's a weird environment where basically you just start a business, right? And then you can run a poker room and that's kind of all there is to it, which obviously opens the door for some malfeasance um, or just inexperience that leads to malfeasance, right? Just somebody that kind of gets in over their head, not understanding the market and yeah, then just things kind of unravel from there. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man Coach Brad Wilson has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R. One thing that I've wondered about, because I haven't been to Texas yet, um, how, how does the atmosphere compare to, uh, you know, the atmosphere of like this newer poker environment compared to like Los Angeles, where they've had card rooms since the dawn of time? Um, is it a different atmosphere than card rooms like on the West Coast or on the East Coast or anything like that that you've seen? I can tell you that it's not one size fits all for all the rooms, but generally speaking, uh, they're called social clubs, right? And like, that's that's part of why that I told you about, like it has to be a private club and you have to be a member. So like part of it is that, and that's why they call them all social clubs. But like most of the time they live up to that. It is a social club, like it's a social environment. There's a lot more people that are there because they enjoy being around other people. They enjoy playing this game with other people. And so it's, there is a lot more, there's a lot more drinking, laughing, talking. There's a lot more interacting with people and a lot less headphones, sunglasses, hoodies. Don't look at me. Don't talk to me. There's a lot less of that. And there's a lot more uh, interaction. I mean, they really are social and it's, it's an environment that you can just hear when you walk in. There's, you hear lots of noise you hear laughing you hear people yelling sometimes we're playing music at the bar it's there's people are just there really enjoying the game and i've realized during my time here that it's just there's not a whole lot of gambling outlets in texas there's not casinos you can't go play blackjack you can't go play roulette you can't do some things that even if you're in a place that doesn't have 
legal casinos, there's usually some version of it somewhere. And so poker, if you want to get a little bit of your gamble on, that's the place where you go. And a lot of these people, they're not there trying to make a living. They're not there. Hopefully they win a few bucks, but if they lose, they lose. It's their entertainment. And those type of people are the ones that are having a good time. And it makes it a more enjoyable experience generally. And that's something that I've found to be true in pretty much every Texas card room that I've been to is it is actually a lot more social than most places. Yeah, that's really reassuring and good to hear because that's the best environment in which to play poker, right? The camaraderie, um, the conversations, meeting people, the fun, the sweat, the, the collective sweat. By the way, I was going to mention before how y- you said that Savage loves the sweat and you don't love the sweat, and yet you wish that you would miss all your guarantees by $100. And both of those are like diametrically opposed to one another, right? <laughs> because it wouldn't be a sweat if I knew I was going to miss by $100. Like <laughs> I, I would take that right now. If I could miss every guarantee by $100, I would sign me up right now. Some people, like, they take pride in smashing it, right? Like, oh, we did a million and it got $5 million. And I'm like, all right, then you weren't gambling. Like, congratulations. But... There, there was, yeah, you weren't really gambling. I want there to be, I mean, I want there to be both, right? Like, so you the like same- the sweat. You, you're just like, you, you're, you just don't want to admit it on the podcast, but you're DJ and, and you like the sweat just like Savage does. No, okay. Here's, here's the, here's the God's honest truth. I like the sweat after it's over, like after I know that I'm going to get there or after. Savage that's not the sweat. sweat. That's, that's Savage the- likes the sweat in the moment. Like, it's the same, like, we just went to Six Flags, me and my kids, and they were, like, horrified to go on Superman, you know, it goes up 26 stories or whatever, and they, like, the whole time, they're up there, like, oh, my God, it's terrible, and then when they get off, one of them was, like, okay, yeah, it's still terrible, I didn't like it, and the other one was, like, oh, it was horrible before, but once you do it, it was awesome, like, I'm more like my older son, like, it's, yeah, once it's over, then it was awesome, <laughs> and Savage is more like, oh, no, I want it the whole time, I want it. I want to feel the pain the entire time. Yeah. Well, congratulations, uh, Mr. Hammer. You've put yourself in a position to ride that ride a, a billion more times. Um, <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but before we, you know, we wrap up here, uh, I want to go through some, some lightning round questions really fast. Uh, I think, um, by the way, for the podcast listener, there may be another mic issue on Justin's side where there's some like crackle um, that I can hear. We're we're falling apart, honestly. We're yeah, no. And this, I appreciated it earlier when you said there were technical difficulties, but it's definitely all on my side. I am just, <laughs> I am having a rough day. Well, you know, can't can't win them all, um, but these things happen, right? It's just a part of life, and that's. To, to be honest, like the little quirks, little unexpected things that happen, um, keep it exciting. And I think it's been, you know, a great conversation and I've really learned a lot uh, about both you and Texas poker, which I'm sure the listeners are quite, uh, excited and happy to, to learn about. And also just the sweat of being a tournament director and having the responsibility of like hitting these guarantees. And especially when so many people downstream are affected by said guarantees or in the case of you know this five million guarantee the owner of prime social is directly affected if you miss the guarantee which it seems to be like a whole nother beast altogether from you know the the conglomeration 
Um, what would you say is the most unexpected thing that's come from your journey through the world of cards? Uh, I, I have a lot of players that now are some of my best friends that kind of started as like people screaming in my face or people threatening to beat me up or people saying it's the worst ruling they've ever seen in their entire lives. I've had a lot of interactions where uh, I've learned and very much credit due to my friend, Matt Savage, that holding grudges or taking things personally, even personal things personally, like me saying (laughs) you are a piece of shit, like that's personal but you still don't need to take that personally because there's circumstances involved with it, right? So learning that you can take things like that and then just move on from them. Like all I ever want is to make sure that it's going to be a safe, friendly poker environment. There isn't a whole lot that can, I know where that's true, but I'm gonna be, I'm gonna have a grudge against you anyway. Like I, I will protect myself in my room from dangerous situations but there's not a whole lot that I can't get past if me and whoever's involved both agree that that's for the betterment. And so there's a lot of people that I have started out with just, I know people that would never talk to that person again for the rest of their lives. And now not only are they some of my closest friends and best players, but they travel to where I am to come play my tournaments. So it's, you told me that I was going to have that type of experience, even when I was in the business, when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine years involved in running tournaments, I would have said, there's no chance. Like, I don't have that in me. I have, I have grudges. I want revenge. I want like, your last name is hammer for God's sake. Right. Right. But it is, it was entirely unexpected that you can just move on from these sort of things and everyone will be better off because of it. And it's, it was very unexpected and in a very good way. Awesome. That, that, that's great to hear. And, you know, Poker can bring out the worst in us in those moments. It's very high pressure. There's a lot on the line, especially deep in tournament poker specifically, where yeah, some some people will do things that are maybe out of character that they otherwise wouldn't do and probably have regret and feel shame for, you know, a, a week later or maybe even a day later. Um, but yeah, it's I guess that would be a pretty important trait to have as a tournament director, just being able to kind of move on and recognize that, okay, this is a thing that happens and doesn't have to be the end of the world. And I don't have to hate this human being for the rest of my life. Um, When you think of joy in your career in the world of poker, what's the first memory that comes to your mind? Uh, Honestly, the first one, when I was, when I worked downtown at Binion's, they had a 10 table room that they built. And it was like, uh, it was kind of in this pit and it had a glass surrounding and there was never 10 tables going. There was one, two on the weekends, there was three. And there was a deal that my boss made with us uh, when you were running the room, when you were the floor supervisor for the room, if you could ever get all 10 tables going, then he would come and work your next shift for you. And you would get you would get your entire salary. You would make whatever you were going to make. But like that was the if anyone can ever pull this off, you have ten tables running. And I learned working downtown how to manufacture games. 
Like there was no circumstance where you could tell me I couldn't start a table. Like you have zero players. Okay, we'll figure out a way. Like sometimes, not gonna lie, I would write fake names down on the list. Sometimes <laughs> I would find somebody walking by and say, have you ever played poker before? Do you wanna try? I would walk out on Fremont Street and look for people, whatever it took to get a game going. So we had a night where it took a lot of work, but we got up to eight games naturally. And then what I learned to keep games going, when I worked graveyard, if the room went dark, I went home and I didn't get paid anymore. So like, if there was no games going, I can either find a way to get a game going and get paid or call it quits and end the night. So I learned how to do that. And having that skill, when I got to eight tables, now I'm two away from this magical dream that nobody's done before since we built this room. I found a way to manufacture those two tables and we had 10 and took a picture of it, called my boss, like, hey, we've got 10 tables going right now. My next shift is tomorrow. <laughs> have, fun, <laughs> like, buddy. have a good one. <laughs> yeah. And that was just like, that was kind of what gave it, gave me the understanding of there's, there's something you could do. You're not just there managing the people that are there. Like you, you can make things happen. You can create, you can, it's, you're not just looking over people and telling them where to go. Like, you're making it an experience that makes them want to come back and you're providing an experience that people can come enjoy and be a part of. And it was like one of the first parts that gave me that drive to, I want to keep filling tables. I want to keep, give me, it's like a blank canvas. Give me 50 extra tables. I will find a way to fill those 50 extra tables. And it's, that's part of the fun for me now. Yeah. Like some people, the fun is like playing the game. For me, it's playing this game. How do we get people into the seats? Yeah, it's just sure a different they, game. Yeah. And, and, and I can see the allure, right? I, I can see why that would be, I mean, maybe the best trait that a tournament director could have, right? Like building the games, uh, getting people to show up, the marketing side, the growth side, uh, the selling side, right? Which is exceptionally valuable um, to your employer, which is the poker room itself right and i mean right. it's kind of shocking to me hearing you talk about it in this way you know very passionately that every tournament director doesn't feel exactly the same right um or doesn't make that a priority but i guess dims dims the breaks maybe <laughs> that's just I, how you it know goes. i i've been very blessed for the path that my career went right like i i learned under paul campbell and then after that, I went to Aria, which was one of the biggest rooms on the strip at the time. And then I go to Commerce and I work with Matt Savage. So like literally every person who has ever won tournament director of the year was my mentor in this business. Something. And I went, yeah, I went from uh, downtown Las Vegas to right in the middle of the strip Las Vegas to the biggest card room in the world and was tasked with doing something in every single one of those in a different environment and what that does is just forces you to adapt and learn the skills involved in every whether you have zero games going and you need two or you have 20 games going and you need 30 or you have a 70 table tournament just you could do whatever you want fill it up and there's not a whole lot of people not through anything other than circumstance who have had the ability to learn through all of those situations. And I've been very fortunate enough to do it to where now when I come to a place like Texas, like I just have this plethora of experience to kind of 
show other people how to do it and kind of make it work in an environment that they didn't really have anything like this. So like it's, I've been very fortunate in my career to have all the circumstances kind of line up where I've been trained by the best and I've been in every situation you can imagine. And now I'm kind of tasked with using that information to build a room in a city where poker is kind of new. Yeah, it's it's fortunate that you had all of those mentors to lean on. And I also believe that it's fortunate that, you know, Texas and Prime Social has you to kind of help them grow and learn and yeah, move uh, to the next step um, in their progression as a, a state that has lots of poker, right? And is really trying to do something big in the poker space, which I think Texas genuinely is. Um if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, what would you change? Oh man, I there's it's it's tough. Part of what I just told you about was like uh, it's experience, right? A lot of what I know is from experience. It's just from the grind of being on this side of it. If I could wave a magic wand, I would kind of give that experience to everybody like the understanding of the operations side of what it takes. And it's not because I want it to be, oh, now you know, or like I want to, part of my job is customer experience, right? Customer service. You want to come play the tournament, have a good time and go home. It doesn't, you don't want to learn about everything that's happening because it's, why would you? You're there, like, I don't want to know how every ride operates at the theme park that I just went to, right? I want to get on and I want to get off. Or, or how so, every single movie is made, you know, before right, you go like to the so, theater. And so the struggle is people, people tend to respond with what they know. And a lot of them, what they know isn't very much. So I'm stuck in a spot where I want you to come. I want you to have a good time. I also want to explain why I'm doing some of these, but I don't want to come across as I'm lecturing you or... I'm better than you, or I'm smarter than you. That's why you're doing this. I don't want to do that. I want to give you the experience that you want to have. I want you to come in, play, have a good time, and then go home. Now, sometimes, you know, you go on a podcast or you talk to somebody or they want to know, hey, what's it like on the other side? What is happening? And then, you know, more than happy to sit down and explain it or talk to it or give my understanding of how things work. If I can wave the magic wand, I would just give it to everybody. I would give it to them. I don't want to make it seem like I'm lecturing you. I don't want to teach you information that you have no interest in learning. I just want you to know it. I just want you to know it. So when it, there are poker players that no matter the circumstance, no matter what, they will say a sentence like, oh, with the amount of rake they take, you should be doing fill in the blank. And sometimes it's like, with the amount of rake you're taking, you should buy an $800 million yacht. And it's like, you, it's not, it's not like, I'm taking 50 and my competitors taking 30 and you're saying to yourself with that extra $20 you take, it should be, my competitors could be taking a hundred and I'm taking 50 and they will say with that extra rake you take, you should do fill in the blank. And it's like, no, some of these, I am finding the ways to take as little as possible and still keep this as a functioning, like worthwhile venture. And so I just think sometimes people just don't know, yeah. or it's how much are we taking based on how long this tournament's going to last? How much are we taking based on what we're providing with this? This, like the last, the last series we did at Prime Social, we wanted everyone to know they were safe. We spent 
$50,000 on security alone, just on security, having off-duty police, having multiple people there, having it so that not only will you, Brad, after you win 200000 not only will I have an escort for you to your car, but if you get off the one-two table and you won 300 bucks and you want an escort to your car, I have that for you too. Because it's not about how much you have or it's not your safety isn't important to me based off of how much you're carrying based off of you the person i want you to feel safe when you're here and so we spent a lot of money on that and you look at the end and you say oh they made x number of dollars and that's never true you can't just take the juice the admin fee multiply it by the number of players and then say that's how much you made because it's just never true i bring in the best staff from around the country for our tournaments i bring in the best security i provide the best environment for poker that you will find, at least I strive to, and that stuff all costs money. You, all, you have to spend to do it. So when you bring in all this money, I always hope that when you go, you bring it in and then you start giving it out, I always hope that that number is black and not red. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, but it's, I wish I could just give that information to people. Like here's, yeah. oh, here's yeah. a look of what all the numbers look like. Yeah, and, and by the way, the the owner of Prime Social also would like to turn a profit as well after. <laughs> um, yeah, that's selfish bastard. Yeah, that's selfish <laughs> he's not, bastard. He's, Take, he's not taking just all doing the risk. Yeah, ta yeah, taking all the risk and gonna make a profit. Wow, that's right. terrible. How how can he do such a thing? Right. Which the stuff we talked about earlier, like it's I'm not an owner, right? Like that's not my business. So when I say like oh, I want to put on these big guarantees or I want to do this. Like it is the ownership at Prime puts a lot of faith in me. They put a lot of trust in me to do this. And as much, as much credit or whatever recognition that I've ever gotten in my life, it is 100% because of people like that. Even at Commerce, where we didn't end on the best of terms, those guys put all their faith in me. They, they said, here you go. What's the number? How many zeros are going to go in that guarantee? And if you're wrong, we're going to pay it. So like that's it's just another fortunate part of my career that I've had, but especially here at Prime Social, where it's like it's a couple of guys who own this place that are like, OK, you tell us what we're going to do and then sell it to us. And then we're going to just kind of give you the green light to do what you want. And it's it's worked out for both of us, I think, over this last couple of years that I've been in Texas. But a huge shout out and praise belongs to the people that give me the opportunity to do these things. Like it's, I'm not risking my own money when I do this. I'm risking somebody else's money. And that takes a lot of faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, so if you could put up a billboard where every poker player who's driving to the card room, they got to drive past it. What does your billboard say? Uh, more rake is better. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I definitely You're done. Not it's that. over. Prime, prime social <laughs> in the tank. <laughs> no, I definitely, I definitely wouldn't say that. I just, I remember when Doug did that and uh, a billboard. I, man, I don't know. But we had, we actually had one of those uh, trucks that says prime social, like Texas poker championship that we had driving loops around the airport during this last series. I am all about marketing. Like I want as many people, a lot of tournaments fail because nobody knows about it. Like that's the most underrated difficult part about what people like me do is 
I could have the best structure, the best environment, the best poker. I could have the best room. I could have the best everything. Guess what? If nobody knows about it, it means nothing. You still miss guarantees. You still have. And if the incentives aren't right either, right? Like you mentioned the incentives of um, reducing rake for people to just show up on time, right? It's like you're incentivizing them to buy in and show up. And a lot of times human beings need these incentives to get their ass in gear and take action. And without them, they just kind of wander around. Um, But when they have direction and incentive, like when the thing that – they plan to do is good for them. They're going to do it. And like, I mean, as a, a business owner myself who sells courses and runs a community and all of these things, I can say 1 billion percent that like incentivize people and they will get shit done way faster and sm- more smoothly than if you don't incentivize them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, my billboard would say, keep poker legal. It would be in Texas. Keep poker legal. There you go. Keep poker legal. Um, you working on any projects right now that are near and dear to your heart? Besides I, the prime social? Uh, I, I have a tournament series that we're working on that might be in Vegas. It's, uh, there's not a whole lot out yet, but if people, if you follow me on Twitter, the Justin hammer, I talk about everything that I'm doing as it comes up, but, uh, there there is some stuff that we're working on. I also interact with DJ over at Commerce quite a bit, and he's putting together a series in September that the whole goal is to do just things that haven't been done before. So, like, we want to do fun tournaments. We want to do mystery bounty type of stuff, but, like, a new version of that. And it's – I am always all for new creative things that kind of mix it up a little bit, maybe just maybe things that like you don't have to be the best player in order to win. I think those kinds, I think that's why mystery bounties have done so well is you can win a hundred thousand dollars and you don't have to win the entire tournament. Like you just kind of have to make day two and make the money, which feel part of the reason moneymaker did so well is because it made all of us think that we could do it. So the the whole concept of, you have to make the money and then eliminate a player and you can win. That's something we can all do. I think that's why people enjoy doing it so much. So uh, most of my stuff, honestly, I am taking everything we learned from Texas Poker Championship and I am getting it ready for Texas Poker Championship too. So these projects are more, uh, we get sponsorships. We get people that help support us outside of just playing the tournament or uh, doing whatever. Poker Bros was a huge help to this last one. I I understand that they have a site where you can like make money on the site or whatever, but like the Play Money app, the free version, those are the people that I work with. Those are who support us. Uh, they I have big plans for them in the future. Uh, we have exquisite timepieces. They sell watches. They were a huge sponsor for us. Mezcal, uh, Recuerdo Mezcal, the tequila. They were a huge sponsor. As we go, as we go forward, I like to do things like that. How, how can I help businesses outside of the poker community so that they are incentivized, we were talking about, to help out the poker community. And so those are, those are the kinds of things that happen outside of writing structures and building schedules and doing marketing and promotion. These are the kinds of things that happen that are all little projects in and of themselves that 
starting right now for close to a year from now when we do the next one i'm going to be spending a lot of my time on working yeah on. let's uh just figure out how to how to make cpg podcast um part of part of the operations there <laughs> let's ra raise raise you my numbers how, how do we make something that's mutually beneficial for both of us um absolutely we'll talk we'll talk yeah let's talk um yeah so you answered it a little bit before, but final question on the show is uh, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness listener, if they want to learn more about you, find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, I'm the Justin Hammer on pretty much everything, just Justin Hammer on TikTok? Facebook. But uh, I do have a TikTok. I knew it. You I, look like a TikToker. I, I make some videos uh, with my kids. I don't post a whole lot, but I do spend way too much time on there. Uh, but I do, I want to get Prime Social at TikTok, actually. Uh, you can follow Prime, all that stuff, primesocialtx.com uh, and at primesocialtx is all of their socials. But uh, we, a lot of what we do there is kind of breaking the mold on how you do tournament stuff. So you want to follow our tournaments provide chip count updates every two hours or less for 100% of the players in the tournament. I don't care if it's a 300-player tournament or if it's a 12-player tournament. You get accurate chip counts every two hours or less on our site. And it's something that I put a lot of time and effort and energy into. And it's been a huge success. It works. It does really great. And you can follow anybody. If you have Joe Schmo in the tournament who nobody knows, I'm going to let you know how they're doing because they're in a tournament at Prime Social. Uh, it's, it's something that I think that everybody should be doing. And so I'm kind of coming up with a format for how to do it. I'm happy to share that information with anybody who wants it, like not keeping it to myself. I'm not making it so that you have to pay me for it. Like, it's just, it's something that we should be doing because the more information you could give about what's happening in the tournament, the more people are interested in that tournament. And that just helps kind of all of us. But the only reason I say that is primesocialtx.com. Follow that every time you see a series that I'm doing, even if you can't come play, just check out that site and that helps our numbers, that helps what we're doing and that uh, I'm always involved with that site somehow so you can see what I'm doing there. And yeah, we, we kind of skipped past this, uh, I feel a little sheepish, but where is Prime Social in Texas? Because I've heard Texas is kind of, it has a lot of uh, space there. It's a big, <laughs> yeah. it's a big place. <laughs> Yeah, let's make sure we do that. It's in Houston, Texas, uh, 7801 Westheimer to be more specific, but it's in Houston, uh, just right down the street from the Galleria. It is the best social club in Houston. It's the best social club in Texas, as far as I'm concerned. And yes, some of that is because they uh, pay my bills and support Shots me very Shots fired much. to Doug Polk and, uh, and all those guys. Let's get it. I they, I, I plan on giving them a run for their money, but that's why I specifically said earlier, like there are places outside of where I work where I would say, yeah, you should go check that out and go play. I'm a player too. The reason I know what to put in tournaments or at least the information I use is because I just do what I would like to play myself. And I think I you put must together be. Schedules, like, I put together schedules that I would like to play myself. And so yeah. like that's... That's the biggest gripe that I've had for any bad experience or any experience that I've had playing on poker platforms online or in live when people are running the ship that don't, that are not poker players that don't understand sort of how things work, right. And commerce forever, um, you know, for better or worse, they, 
ran, they were just the model place of how they did business back when I was traveling and playing cards, right? The high stakes room, you could order food and you could order whatever you wanted. Um, and you just tipped and like, they took care of their, their high limit players, um, in a way that, you know, places in other parts of the country, like Florida, for instance, just didn't, um, you know, they had enough staff to like, get you cocktails, get you drinks, get you food. You didn't have to wait, uh, five hours for some crappy food, um, that you had ordered. And that was always, those were always big perks. And you could just tell that that specific room was ran by poker players, people had a, who had experience in the arena. And, and I think that it's just so critical for all of these rooms. Like if you're listening right now in Texas and planning on starting a room and don't know much about poker, find somebody who is an expert that can help you do things the right way because there is a right way and there is a wrong way. Trust me. And the players can feel it and they know, um, at least, yeah, that I'll end my little, my little rant here where we can close down shop. But I think it is, it's just very important that people who understand what's going on, um, run these things, or they at least outsource it, cons- consult, get experience, ask questions to people with more knowledge than they have, because we all want our poker rooms across the country to have the best experience and to provide the best experience, because ultimately that's good for the game. And what's good for the game is good for everybody who's in the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I would have no success at all if I didn't take feedback from players, coworkers, supporters haters everybody i take every i i feel like i like i said earlier i have a lot of experience i've learned a lot i still don't think i know everything and i'm always happy to hear what anybody has to say good or bad about anything i've done or i'm going to do and i think i can attribute a lot of what i've had in this business to having that aspect of my just how i do things and so yeah i think it's very important to Create an experience that people want to keep coming back to and do it by getting the feedback from those people that you want doing it for sure. Absolutely. Man, it's been great having you on the show. We'll roll this back in the near future with fewer technical difficulties. Yeah, you got it. I'm, I'm going to be there a half hour early and everything's charged <laughs> and the best Wi-Fi. Everything will be good to go. I promise. Awesome, man. H- have a good rest of your day. Good talking to you. Thank you for your time and energy. And yeah, best of luck hitting all your guarantees at Prime thanks, Social. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Brad. It was a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.